we begin the second half of Mark's Gospel and the section from chapter 8, verse 31, through to chapter 9, verse 29. And a great section in Mark again this morning. 8.31 to 9.29 is a, a kind of coherent unit in Mark, and we're going to read it and try and understand what Mark is teaching us together. So 8.31. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. In other words, Elijah and Moses have gone. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted them. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he is a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth. 
and becomes rigid. So I asked you disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Amen. And may God speak to us from his living word. Let's pray that he'll do so for a moment. Father, we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, speak clearly and apply these words that you have inspired to be written to our hearts, and we pray that supremely, as this Bible passage does, Jesus Christ would be glorified, and that we would listen to him. And we ask that in his name, and for his sake. Amen. Now, from Mark chapter 8, verse 31 through to chapter 10, verse 52, to the end of chapter 10. This is a a coherent, extended section in Mark's Gospel where the focus is on what does it look like to follow Jesus. And that extended section from 831 to 1052 is broken up, and this is typical of the way Mark writes, into three uh, smaller sections. And today we deal with the first of them, 831 to 929. And in this first section, Mark, using the teaching of the Lord Jesus, sets out the principles of what it means to follow him. And then next week, God willing, Sam will take us through the second section, 930 to 1031, where where Jesus kind of paints a portrait with a number of brush strokes, little cameos, little practical pictures of what it's like to be a follower. But this week, chapter 8, 31 to 9, 29. And uh, our section uh, today itself is divided into three. Again, uh, typical of Mark. Now, you'll see the outline uh, on the service sheet, how Mark divides this into three. He begins in chapter 8, verses 31 to 38, with the theme of suffering and serving. Jesus teaches that his own life, or his Messiahship, or what his Messiahship will look like, is suffering and serving. And then he teaches off the back of that, that all who follow him, all disciples, 
Their lives are to be patterned on his, that is, suffering and serving. That's the first uh, part of, of three parts. The next step bit, uh, chapter 9, verses 1 to 13, uh, this unique event up on the mountain where Peter, James, and John see Jesus as the King of glory. And the voice from God, and that's such a rare thing in Scripture, such a rare thing in history. Three times in the whole of the Bible, God speaks in this direct way from heaven. This is my Son. Listen to Him. The emphasis is on the Him. And then thirdly, we're back down off the mountain in the valley, in the real world that you and I know well, the world of disorder and uh, struggling and discouragement. And that key lesson, for every follower of Jesus, you need to depend on him. Now, that's Mark's three parts. And you can see, I hope, as we stand, as it were, and look at the wood before we get into the trees, Mark's kind of rhythm. He begins with what is very radical, straight, plain teaching on suffering and serving. The Son of Man must die, and if you are going to be my disciple, and notice, we'll get to this in a minute in more detail, he gathers the crowd to him and he says, listen, all of you, there's no kind of special branch of disciples. There's no MI5 or MI6 disciples. All disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny self and take up his cross. And it's straight stuff. And so we did encouraging. So in the second part of Mark's three-part structure, we're up on the mountain and we get to see Jesus revealed before our eyes as well as the disciples for who he is. He's the king of glory. And as you look at the king of glory in his majesty, God breaks in and says, as you look at him, listen to him. Block out every other voice, every other siren voice, not least the voice in your own mind and heart, and listen to the King of glory. And then back down in the, mount, in the valley, in the world that we know and live in, that vital lesson for all followers of Jesus. You will not function as an effective disciple unless day by day you depend on him. So that's Mark's rhythm and logic. Let's take each part in turn. Firstly, suffering and serving, 831 to 838. Now, just a few verses before, chapter 8, verse 30, Peter has had revealed to him by God the wonderful truth as to who Jesus is. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And God has opened Peter's blind eyes and his deaf ears. And Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are God's King. Come to rescue us. But Peter has still more he needs to understand. And so, verse 31, Jesus began to teach them, the disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. Now, that would have come as a shock for the disciples. As soon as they heard the words, Son of Man, 
their minds would have gone to a great uh, prophetic text in the Old Testament, Daniel 7. A glorious vision of the coronation of one like a son of man, king of God's everlasting kingdom, before whom every knee would bow. It is a magnificent vision of glory, of power. And the kind of text Peter and the others would have lived and breathed. And now the Messiah has come. And he is calling himself the Son of Man, but he is saying that as the Son of Man, he must suffer and serve and die. Yes, the great vision of Daniel 7 would be fulfilled, but first he must die on a cross and then be raised and then be glorified. Peter's response is strong. Verse 32, Jesus spoke plainly and Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Literally, the Greek is Peter put Jesus down. Effectively, he said to him, no, Jesus, it's not going to be this way for you. Strong words from Peter, and then the very strongest of words from the Lord Jesus. Turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. That's strong, isn't it? Get behind me, Satan, for Peter, you do not have in your mind the mind, the thinking, the wisdom of God, but you've got worldly wisdom. Just as an aside, it's striking that uh, worldly wisdom isn't neutral wisdom, according to the Lord Jesus. It is uh, Satan's wisdom, the prince of this world. Now, I can imagine when... uh, Peter held this rebuke from the Lord Jesus, get behind me, Satan, uh, uh, that he would have kind of slunk back, and to be careful not to fall off here, but he would have kind of slunk back, his head down. Gosh, strong rebuke. And you're kind of crying out at this point for some savlon for the cuts, some kind of encouragement. But Jesus, we get to that, but now he just, he turns to them and he, he says, come on, all of you, gather around, all the crowd. And I mean, just said that the pattern for his own life is suffering and serving. He then says, if anyone, anyone, everyone who follows me, their life is to be one of denial of self and of suffering for the sake of the gospel. And if Peter had slunk back and his eyes were down, you can imagine the other 12. The shock of that must have been strong. Now, what does it mean to deny self? And what does it mean to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Now, to deny self is 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 a total turnaround of the way I think and the way my heart is orientated. It is to turn away from me as the center of my world, my passions, my desires, my ambitions, to turn from that to God, to Jesus, and to others being the center, the object of my affections, the, the, the vision for how I will serve and live my life. When a Christian really lives like that, it is a powerful thing. 
when I am no longer driven by my ambitions, but my ambitions become devotion to God and to others, then I am an effective disciple of Jesus in the advance of his kingdom. What does taking up your cross mean? It means that from the first until the Lord Jesus returns, that the pattern, the means, the way, the church, the gospel, the kingdom of God advances in the world is not through power, but through weakness and through suffering, for the gospel is opposed. Now, what a brilliant recruitment campaign this is. If you want to follow me, you need to turn your life around. You need to put me, yourself, into the background, and God and Jesus and others into the foreground. They are the object of your affections and your serving and your love, and you've got to pick up a cross and be willing to suffer for the advance of the gospel. That is not a smart recruitment campaign. Now, in verses 35 to 37, Jesus gives us the logic as to why it is worth it. Why on earth would anyone do this? Well, the answer is in that phrase. On earth, I guess no one would. But in light of all eternity, we should. So verse 35, for whoever would save his life, that is, say no to Jesus, no to denying self, no to taking up your cross in this life, will lose it. Eternal judgment. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels, that is, say yes to Jesus, yes to denying self, yes to taking up your cross, will save it. Eternal life. Verse 36. I vividly remember reading verse 36, day after day after day, with a man who was very resistant to the gospel, but wanted me to return to this text with him every day as he died. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What good is it, in the end, to say no to Jesus, no to denying self, no to taking up your cross, if you gain the whole world, reputation, success, Yet, as the price, forfeit your soul and face judgment in all eternity. Or verse 37, for what can a man give in return for his soul? If you say no to Jesus the day you face him on judgment day, what chips will you bargain your eternity on? That I did this. That I amassed this. What will you offer to Jesus? when you see him face to face. And then Jesus concludes in verse 38 with a searching challenge. What stops people often from answering the call to follow Jesus? They are ashamed of public loyalty to Jesus. Sam and I have been through at Strathclyde doing a missions week, and it's been great and encouraging in many ways. The comments, though, I remember often the discouraging ones. I had a conversation with a lad on Friday night, and effectively he said to me, I would like to become a Christian, but I don't have the bottle for people to know. He was ashamed. Which is exactly what Jesus says here. For whoever is ashamed of me in this life, in this world, of him, 
will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in his glory of the Father with the holy angels? Now, let's pause and allow Mark's text to ask us some searching questions. And and these questions are for Christians. Remember, Peter and the others here are insiders. These are questions for inside the church, if you like. They are close companions of Jesus. They've struggled to come to terms with the fact that Jesus must die with his suffering service. And they struggle to come to terms with the fact that the pattern for them is to be suffering service. And I guess the question for us as Christians is that have we fully grasped this? I mean, Jesus speaks plainly. Where do we stand in relation to it? I guess many of us have come to terms with the fact that for Jesus, the cross is necessary for our salvation. But what about the stuff on following Jesus? That call to suffering and serving to deny self and take up your cross. Where are we in honesty in our hearts with that? That radical renunciation of me as the center of my life. What is it that drives me, fires me, my ambitions? Where are my affections directed? Jesus asks us to direct them to him, to his Father, and to others. What do I do in terms of giving my time and my money and my vision and my passion and my energies? Let me encourage you not to compare yourself with the person sitting next to you. Remember, these standards are for every disciple. There are no special branches There are no special disciples. Every follower is called to deny self and take up their cross. And taking up your cross and suffering. In many ways, as Christians, we would love the advance of the gospel to come friction-free. We would love evangelism not to be opposed. We would love the knockbacks not to be there. I would love to read of Christians in parts of the world where there is real suffering, not experiencing it. But they do and they always will. And that is how the gospel advances. Never in power, but power manifested in weakness. Now, it's really important with this little bit of Mark that we hear Jesus' words in the plain way he spoke them and not kind of caveat them or qualify them or explain them away. Yesterday, uh, I was down meeting somebody off the train, and I met a fellow minister who'd been with his 10-year-old son to watch Sunderland beat Manchester United. He was pleased. I was discouraged. And, and he, he, he's a passionate football fan for Sunderland, and there's nothing worse in sport than being a neutral on the terraces. There's nothing worse... They're not bothering about who wins. I took our son to the rugby last week and I I didn't have the heart to pretend at the end it didn't matter that we lost again and again yesterday. But we lost well or better yesterday than we lost the last time. 
And now in life, there's nothing more debilitating and discouraging than lukewarmness or half-heartedness. You're neither hot, you're neither cold. I wish you were. And in the Christian life, there's nothing more liberating for a young Christian or an older Christian, after many years of not nailing their colors to the mast of commitment, doing so. There's nothing more liberating. There's nothing more liberating than serving in a church. There's nothing more liberating than engaging in evangelism. There is nothing more liberating than making the object of your affections the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing more liberating than loving your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, verses 35 to 38 may have been persuasive logic to us. This life compared to all eternity. But Peter, James, and John needed another big dose of encouragement, and we do. And I think the Lord Jesus did himself as he faced the cross. And so, chapter 9, verses 1 to 13, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John away by themselves up on a high mountain. Scotland has beautiful mountains. Picture one in your mind. Jesus takes them up on a high mountain. Lots of my Bible commentaries suggest that he takes them because Peter, James, and John are the chosen three. Peter is the founder of the church. John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He does not take them at this stage because they are the chosen three. He takes them because they are the ones in the greatest need of clarity, the greatest need of encouragement. They're the ones who are reeling. Peter, who has said, you're not going to die. Peter, who in a few short hours will say, I do not know who that man is. He's ashamed of him. James and John, in a few days, will sidle up to Jesus and they'll say, Jesus, James and I have been talking and can we have the seats on either side of you in glory? So he takes them up the mountain and he is transfigured before them. What is going on? Verse 3, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Jesus is revealed to them for who he is. They see beyond his humanity, and he's a man before them as they go up the mountain. They see behind that humanity to the fact that he is the king of all glory, that he is God. And uh, Peter, in his letter, reflects on exactly what they are seeing. And Peter reflects later that they are seeing what Jesus will look like when he returns again. And they are seeing, and we are seeing, the Jesus that we will see in the new creation face to face. This is who we will see face to face. You might remember at the beginning of Mark, uh, chapter 1, I use the analogy of a stage a little bit like this. Jesus walks onto the stage of human history. And in Mark chapter 1, spotlights are turned on. There's the voice of the prophets. There's the voice of John the Baptist. And there's the voice of God. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The spotlights are on Jesus. Here at the beginning of Mark part 2, 
There is one massive spotlight turned on Jesus. The glory of the light of God in the face of Christ. And think of the scenery. They're up a high mountain where there is clouds, the glory of God, the voice of God, the appearance of Elijah and Moses talking with Jesus. What is going on? What does it remind us of? Well, Peter doesn't have any idea. He doesn't know what's going on, verses 5 to 6. I'm sure if we were there, we wouldn't either. We'd be looking around and thinking, I'm not going to make eye contact with him. We could, and what does Peter say? He has to do something, because he's Peter, he says something. He says, let's build some tents, tabernacles. And in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the place that you contained God's presence. You could not be in the presence of God, or you'd be zapped. So Peter says, let's build, let's do something. But what's going on here? What does it remind us of? Surely, it reminds us of that key event in the history of God's people, after God had led them out of Egypt, and Moses went up on a high mountain to meet God, and God spoke to Moses and gave Moses the law, the words of God, and Moses came down that mountain, his face shining from the radiance of God reflected on him. And now we're up a mountain again. And the glory of God is on the mountain, in the person, in the face of God, not radiated onto anyone else. In Jesus, we are seeing God, the King of glory. And Moses is there. And Elijah is there. Elijah representing all the prophets. And Moses representing the law, the words of God. And they're talking with Jesus, and then the voice from heaven, verse 7, a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Three times, three times in the Bible, God does this. Once on Mount Sinai with Moses. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Mark chapter 1, and here again up on the high mountain, this is my son, Psalm 2, the, the kingly Psalm, this is the Messiah, now, just, just take a time out. That, I think, and a number of people spoke to me after the first service about this and, and, and put this idea in my mind. I think they're right. This would have been not simply an encouragement to the disciples, but a great encouragement to Jesus. As he looked down over that mountain to what was ahead of him in order to be glorified, God says to him, you're my son. You're my son. You're the Messiah. My son. My son. This is my son. Listen to him. And as soon as they hear these words, Peter, James, and John look around, and they go, where's Moses gone? Where's Elijah gone? They've gone. And who is left? Listen to him. In him, all the prophets are fulfilled. In him, all the law is fulfilled. Listen to him. Now, we need to hear that just as much as them. Listen to Jesus. Block out every other siren noise. 
Block out the noise the church sometimes makes. Block out the sirens of your own heart. Listen to him. Listen to what? Listen to him, period. Everything he says. God speaks to us supremely through his son. Listen to all that his son says, but specifically, listen to what he has just said. Peter, James, and John, I need to die. No, Jesus. Listen to Jesus. And if anyone would come after me, 834, they must deny self and take up his cross and follow me. We might be persuaded by the logic of verses 35 to 38, but looking in the face of the Jesus Christ that we will see face to face on the day we enter eternity, listen to him. Follow him. And take up your cross and deny self. And let him use you for the advance of his kingdom. Jesus denied self and took up his cross and has led many millions of people to glory because he did that. The church through the ages, Christians through the ages, when they deny self and take up their cross, God uses them and churches to turn many people to Jesus Christ. That through faith in him, he will lead them to glory. Listen to him. Listen to him. What a, a siren call to the church in the Western world today. Listen to Jesus in his word. What a siren call to us as Christians. Listen to him. What an encouragement. Listen to him. Maybe you're not a Christian. Don't listen to me. Turn me off. Listen to him. Listen to him. He calls you to trust him and lays his down his life for your sins. Now, Mark doesn't finish there. He's up there on the mountain. He comes back down into the valley now. What we see on the mountain is the face of Jesus Christ that we will see in glory. And all the suffering and serving will be proved to be worth it. But now we finish back down in the valley. When we lived in London, uh, every Saturday we used to... uh, go up to Kensington in London and visit a museum. You know, these wonderful museums. London has spoiled for museums. And we used to go to the Science Museum, and then we'd go to the V&A for coffee, and then we'd go back to this museum, and then we'd go to the Swings and Hyde Park. It was just brilliant. And in the V&A, which I like best, but none of the others like best, there was lots of wonderful art. And Raphael painted two wonderful pictures, huge big pictures, of one, the transfiguration, up there on the mountain. He took a bit of artistic license, but nonetheless, it's a powerful picture. And next to it, a little bit lower, on the wall, down there in the valley, Mark 9, 14 to 29. And what do we meet in Mark 9, 14 to 29? We meet the world that we know, this world. The world in which following Jesus 
needs to be worked out and grafted out. What's it like in that world? Well, verse 14b, there is the inevitable large crowd symbolizing confusion, pressing, clamoring, demanding from Jesus, crowding out his priorities. In that world, there are the teachers of the law, the religious establishment, arguing with the disciples, verse 14c. Their presence here is elsewhere in Mark to oppose Jesus and his gospel ministry. Jesus asks, what are you arguing about? It's striking. He, he turns, if, if you like, to the, the, the kind of church, and he says, what are you arguing about? And up there, over there, it's not somebody from the church or the inside who answers. There's a, a man on the outside who says, teacher, I brought my son, a dad, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he is a spirit that makes him mute. He's demon-possessed. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he forms and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and his, his words of disappointment, they were not able. A distressed and a disappointed man who has come to the disciples, who has come to the people of God, or to apply this, he has come to the church for help, and he has found none. And implicit in his comments disappointed and powerless disciples who could not uh, help him. This, uh, Andy Robertson, when he preaches, you know, loves alliteration. This is a passage of D's, disorder, disputing, disappointment, the devil. It's just the world. It's hard. And then Jesus appears, verse 20 to 27. He takes center stage in the drama is different. The crowd flock to Jesus. And then Mark uh, records the discussion between Jesus and this dad. And Mark is a man of few words as a writer. If he can use one, he'll use none. If he can use five, he'll use three. But this episode here, it's in Matthew and Luke. And Mark's telling of this story is two and a half times as long as the other Gospels. And the difference, the content that Mark adds, is the conversation between the dad and Jesus about just how bleak things are for his son and for him. Verse 18, verse 20, verse 21, verse 22. And then the devil's power meets divine power in Jesus, verse 25. Jesus saw that a crowd came running together He rebuked the unclean spirit. You mutant, deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying and convulsing and terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he's dead. And you imagine the scene. This is an eyewitness testimony that the crowd would have been whispering, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead. Jesus took him by the hand. Remember in chapter 5, Jesus went into a room and took a little girl by the hand and said, little girl, I tell you, get up. The words here are exactly the same Greek verbs. He says to this little boy, get up. He lifted him up. Chaos is displaced by order. Human dignity is restored. And the power it took to exercise that demon is nothing short of resurrection power. And you begin to see if this final lesson is on depending on Jesus. You and I have no ability to work 
in the realms of that kind of power. We pray for it. We participate in the outworking of it. But that power is God's. Now, two lessons for faith and discipleship here. First, faith is like that man's faith here. I think a great series on Mark's gospel would be on Mark's model disciples. Who are they? Well, not Peter, James, and John and the others yet. That'll come so far in Mark. Levi, the tax collector in the ancient world, the last person you would pick. He's a rogue on the street, yet he's called by Jesus. And in chapter 5, remember that woman who doesn't even have the confidence to speak to Jesus? She comes up to him in the crowd and she reaches out and touches his cloak. Simple, dependent faith. That is what turning and trusting in Jesus is. Laying hold of him in simple faith. And here this man, how real is this? Help my unbelief. Help me to believe. What's he looking for? He's not looking for a systematic theology in his mind. He's trying to wrestle with believing in Jesus as he looks at his son who is struggling and dying. Real life tough stuff about coming to faith. And simple faith is just believing on Jesus Christ. I was chatting to somebody else on Friday night at the mission and and they were just on the cusp of trusting, just on the cusp. And I was trying to say to them, just believe, just believe. Mark 9 was in my mind, just believe. And then God will fill in the gaps. Just believe. Maybe that's a, a direct word from Jesus to someone here. You've listened, you've listened, you've listened, you've listened, you've listened, you've listened. Just believe. Just reach out to him. Pray at the end of the service. Help my unbelief. Help me to see. Help me to see. Now, the second lesson for faith and discipleship is, I guess, the key one here. The helplessness of the disciples in their inability to cure the boy and help the father teaches us that following Jesus as his disciples necessitates our total ongoing dependence on him. Verses 28 and 29 are like a a private seminar for the disciples. When he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he had given them authority to do precisely that, to cast out demons. Why couldn't we do it? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And the point he is making is that you cannot function as a disciple of Jesus Christ, whether you are an apostle or just an ordinary disciple like us, after the apostles, you cannot function, you cannot live, you cannot see progress in the kingdom of God unless for it all and in it all you depend on Jesus, in whom and in whom alone as the king of glory, power is to be found to bring people from darkness to light. Prayer is the truest gauge of our dependence on Jesus. So when we gather on Thursday night once a month to pray, what are we doing? We're not informing ourselves of what is going on primarily. We're not going through an exercise. We're saying to God, we can't do it. You need to help us. You need to help us. You need to show us. You need to bring people to us who aren't Christians that we can share the gospel with. You need to give us the boldness to go to them. We will never serve Jesus apart from him. Any power or effectiveness we can know as his followers is his power 
So in our church life, the big issues we face, the big challenges we face, evangelism, growing as Christians, our unity, searching for a building, all that stuff, strikes me that I think for that uh, last one, which is not the most important one, but it will help with evangelism if we land a plane in a community somewhere in the city, we've lost the heart or we've forgotten to pray, depending on God, that he will provide that. We need to ask him for it will not be unopposed, a living church landing in a community in this city. We need to pray that God will break through for us, with us. And in our personal lives. And let's end there, not with this big stuff, not this corporate stuff, but let's end with that man in Mark chapter 9 as he looks at his son. I don't think that man could have got through another day without depending on his Savior. In the first service, we had a lady sitting right at the front. And it's hard for me. She spent most of it in tears. She's dying. She's dying. And whenever I said, at this point, you cannot get through another day without depending on Jesus, you know, the biggest nod in the room comes from her. And that's real. It's real faith. Real discipleship. Depending on him. So there's Mark's lessons on discipleship. If you are going to follow me, you must deny self and take up your cross, corporately, individually. Come up on the mountain and have a look into the face of the one you will see face to face when you are in glory, the King of glory, Jesus for who he is. Look at him. You're going to spend all eternity with him and listen to how you should live now. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. And Rid yourself of mediocrity and apathy. Don't be a neutral and a terracing of life. Be a passionate fan, passionate supporter of Jesus. Love your brothers and sisters in the church. Love them. Love them. And do not ever try to get through a day in this world. Do not try to advance God's kingdom in this world without every single day depending on the one that you saw up on that mountain in all his glory, whose power is as potent as it ever has been to bring people out of darkness into the light of his kingdom. And in all the struggles of life, Andy prayed helpfully for that. And of course, we embrace that in this room, don't we? whether it's sickness, illness, anxiety, worry, jobs, families, whatever it is. Like Jesus with that man. Depend on me. Lean on me. Lean on me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these great uh, lessons in your word. We thank you that the call to the Christian life is a call to be liberated from mediocrity and apathy and how good that is. We pray, Lord, that we would listen as a church, listen as individuals, listen as Christians to the call to deny self and to take up our cross and be willing and obedient to do so. And Lord, help us to be persuaded by the logic of this life compared to all eternity. But help us to be persuaded primarily by the person of Jesus Christ, this revelation of the King of glory, the one that we will see face to face. We will look into his eyes. 
Help us to listen to him. And to block out all the voices around us. And we pray, Lord, that as we seek to serve you in our church life and as we seek to serve you as individuals and as we seek to get through another day, we would not do it ever in our own strength, but depend on you and express that dependence on our knees in prayer, crying to you for help and wisdom and provision and guidance. And Lord, we pray that if we have not yet trusted Jesus, we would listen to him. Listen to the one who calls us to repent and believe. And listen to the one who laid down his life as a supreme act of sacrificial service that we might be forgiven and was raised to life that we might live for all eternity. Listen to him. May we all do that. For we ask in his name.